Progressive Rugby League. John O'Duncan. What happens when you go from being a household name due to your current exploits on a football field to being a household name because of your former exploits? If the combox or coaching aren't your thing, soon enough you'll probably be faced with a pretty daunting prospect of a new existence, light years away from the pro sports cocoon you've been used to. Retirement is an interesting concept and I think I get why some people, particularly sports people, feel uncomfortable about it. There seems to be an underlying assumption in the concept of retirement, fair or not, that whatever you've achieved to this point is as good as you're going to do. The pinnacle belongs in the rear view, it's time to quietly cruise home. And that might be okay, I guess, for people retiring at the age of 65 or 70, but what would it feel like to be cruising home from the age of 34? In reality, using the term retirement for sports people is misleading. Retiring sports people are actually embarking on a career change, like a lot of us do. I've done it. But there's probably a couple of differences between my situation and that of a professional rugby league player. In most cases, for a rugby league player, the career change is forced. Oh, and unlike my career change, there are generally a fair few people that give a rats. No one ever stopped me in the street about the way I used to transition my PowerPoint slides. So I guess it's the reverence we have for sport as a culture, as a society, that leads us to use a term with the gravity of retirement when a player moves on. And while we as individuals may have more nuanced thoughts on the matter, I wonder if, by using that word, as a society, we are indeed saying to professional sports people, you know what, in our minds, you've peaked. I don't know. But I do know ending a professional sporting career would pose some challenges. And we're also learning that if your chosen sport involved countless bone-jarring and brain-rattling collisions, there may be even more challenges in the future. Friends, Plum is the name of a fantastic new novel that follows the post-footy life of a rugby league superstar. And as its main character, Peter Lum, or Plum, is forced to navigate the consequences of a life lived close to the edge, we as readers are forced to see things from an angle we've only ever considered with headline depth. The enormous hole a sporting retirement can leave, the ongoing physical and emotional toll of a rugged pastime, and the knock-on impact on those we love most. It's all there in what is a superbly rich Southern Sydney tale, and I'm so pleased that we have Plum's author, Brennan Cowell, joining us for a chat. Brennan Cowell, thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast, and welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for your time, and I really appreciate you coming along. Now, Brennan, you're a well-known face in Australia. I reckon most Australian listeners will recognise you from your various roles and appearances over the years, but as well as being a well-known actor, you're a very successful writer, in a lot of screenwriting and playwriting, Ruben Guthrie, The Sublime, Bed, are some of your babies. You've also written episodes of The Slap, Love My Way, and Plum is your second novel. So clearly you've got stories in you that you're itching to tell. So I'm curious about how or why this story came about, a story of a retired rugby league great dealing with the, the complications of a, a largely directionless post-footy existence, not to mention the complications of a thousand head knocks. So how and why Plum? Yeah, well, I was in a time in my career in which I started to think about what writing meant to me. I was in the fortunate position. I'd just done a year on a big studio movie and I had a bit of money. And then I found myself back in London. I've been living in London the past six years and I'd had a few unpleasant experiences developing television shows and, you know, I got fired by my British and English writing agents and um, so what am I doing as a writer? I am a writer, but what do I write now? 
and I didn't have to write anything, but I wanted to write something. And and I thought back to, you know, how did I start writing? Why do I write? And I remembered writing poems from when I was 8 to 12. When I was a bit of a lost kid, I wrote poems. And then mm. out of university, I recited my own kind of debaucherous poem, Tales of Debauchery and Romance and young tortured man lost in the night i i recited them in pubs and they went really well mm. and that's when i got the confidence to write my first play and i thought well i want to write something using words how words can save you mm. and then i was thinking what makes a great story is juxtaposition something radical and i thought well who's the la i'm the first person to recite a poem you know it's no surprise when i recite a poem Who's the last person to recite a poem? Who's the last person to find a love of words as a rescuing force? And I thought, what about an old boxer? What about an old footy player or, you know, like a thug, a non-communicative thug? And and that's when the idea of Peter Lahman came into play was Mm. this kind of old footy head who uh, had never really had to express himself emotionally, did it all on the field and on the piss and, and suddenly it came to life and the issue of concussion was just building a couple of years ago with Boyd Cordner and AFL players and mm. so that started to work its way in as, you know, he, his brain is opening up in many ways and it all seemed to kind of, oddly enough, write itself after that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I guess we're in fairly new territory in terms of a couple of the themes from the novel, I guess sport has only been fully professional for, I don't know, a few decades. So there are only a few generations who have had the, the full transition to a new life. You know, uh, In the past, most players worked, but these days most players know nothing but the, the professional sports ecosystem. And so that full transition, that experience is a fairly new phenomenon. So it's, it's rich and, and really interesting terrain. And on the brain injury side of things, we're obviously in fairly new and evolving territory there too with the, the picture becoming clearer by the, the year on the impacts on the brain and on, on life from repeated head knocks. So yeah, there's not much fiction that I know of that has delved much into those specific issues. So Brennan, I'm curious what kind of research you did on both those topics, you know, the, the post-footy life and the concussion side of things to inform the story. Yeah, well, if you're going to deal with a pretty serious issue like this, you can't muck around and you can't disrespect the families of the victims and the victims themselves by not knowing what you're on about. And like any good writer worth their salt, you want to go in there and find out about it because authenticity is better than anything I can come up with. Mm. So I went and researched what concussion is, what CTE is, using Chris Levi, a neuroscientist, he lent his time to me and and then I spoke to Andrew Johns quite a lot who suffered mm. from concussions and seizures and probably six or seven other sportsmen who remain nameless but who were really, really instrumental. And also I just picked up on hundreds of chats that I had from working in rugby league media at SEN and Fox yeah. Sports and, and a lot of my friends are rugby league or ex-sportsmen. And so I just kind of got into it with them. And then, of you know, it all started to come out of the woodwork. But... I actually, you know, when I started writing, I stopped and called Chris and I actually did a consult as if I was Peter Lum, you mm. know, and I went through exactly what would happen with junior neurologists into seeing a specialist, into what tests I would get, mm. into what drugs I would be told to take, 
and exactly what the process and the dialogue would be. So, yeah. and I found all that stuff just so dramatic, you know, just the procedure of, of that, of going to those th- four stages is mm. so dramatic because suddenly Peter Lum is not in control of his life anymore. Mm. And suddenly the most fearless guy in the pub and on the field is shit scared for his own life. But the scariest thing for Peter Lum is not the pain, it's how to share it. Mm. how to share his mortality, how to share his fear. And that's where I'm more interested in as a writer is in the feelsy-feelsy stuff (laughs) of men. How do we communicate fear and a bit of, I don't know, mortality and, you know, the fact that we don't know what we're doing and we need it, we need help. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. That's the thing about novels, isn't it? I have a, a bunch of mates that I, I see quite often and, and some read books semi-regularly, some don't. But generally, if they do, it, it's it's non-fiction only. And, and I, I read a lot of non-fiction too, obviously. But the, the general sense is I want to read real stories, biographies, histories, that sort of thing. I don't have time to read stuff that someone's just made up. You know, that's the vibe. And that's obviously a bit unfortunate because it ignores the fact that authors – such as yourself spend a long time you know often years researching and crafting their stories and the result can often give you a much deeper insight to an issue that you might get from a history or a biography so yeah it's an interesting one and i feel like most of the men i know don't do novels and i was wondering if that was a part of your mindset as you were writing plum because in a way the concept of the book and how the book unfolds to me is kind of inviting people like my mates who who don't read novels who love rugby league uh, to open their eyes to maybe not just fiction, but, you know, beyond to the world of art. Was that a conscious consideration for you? Yeah, I mean, when I was writing the book, my girlfriend at the time said to me, so you're writing a poetry book for footy players and a footy book for poet lovers. <laughs> so basically you're writing a book that no one will want to read. <laughs> And, you know, surprisingly, that relationship didn't work out because, you know, who wants to go out with someone with that kind of attitude? But I said, yeah, absolutely. Or it's a great book and people will read it because people want to read good books. And and when you read a fiction novel, I don't go into a fiction novel going, oh, great, it's about the Second World War. I love the Second World War. I go into a fiction novel going, take me somewhere. Mm. Take me somewhere I've never been, you know. Read The Wild Saragasso Sea. Like, you read a non-fiction book because you're interested in the history of Ford Falcons. Mm. Like, that's, you know, that's why you read it. I love that bloody car. I want to know more about how they started mm. making that bloody car that I bloody love. With fiction novel, it's take me somewhere I've never been. But I'll connect with it because there's human beings in there maybe even in the 1400s, going through exactly what I'm going through, which Mm. is life, relationships, fear of death, failure, ageing, children, love, lust, shame, lying, betrayal, all that stuff is going to be in a book. And that's what a a fiction novel is fantastic because you get lost in another world, but you're not lost at all because everyone's going through the same shit. But I thought, you know, I always bite off more than I can chew and I always think that if you're going to write something, write something that's never really been written before or it's pushing the form a bit. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a footy poetry book and maybe 
she's right. Maybe there's no one who wants to read this book. Or maybe the literary types will go, I've heard it's great, I'll read it. And the footy types who, you know, read the Tiger Woods biography once a year and that's it, Mm. will go, oh, have you heard about that fucking book from that fucking actor guy that loves the sharks? I might read that. Bloody Bricko and Rooster said it was pretty good. And then they read it. They go back to the bookshop the next week and they go, oh, what's that Trent Dalton on? I heard that's all right as well. Or I, I might read that Christoph Chalkis as well. And maybe you kick off a little bit of a reader, you know. Yeah. So oh, I knew that was the risk, but that's what I'm all about, you know. And it is pretty heartwarming that a lot of guys, like my cousin who hasn't read a book since high school, mm. finished it in two weeks, you know. And so it's it's been great. And... Uh, especially in Cronulla, a lot of women, you know, came to the bookshop and said, you know, my husband played footy and he's got the head knock stuff and they were in tears and they were saying thank you. And wow. I've had a lot of DMs on Instagram of women saying my father has dementia or my father died of this or my, my husband, my brother. And so I'm galvanising people through this book and there's catharsis and that's why I do it. That yeah. is why I do it, you know. Yeah, well. I mean, uh, it really is a page turner, a fantastic read. On a related note, I noticed that within the, the quotes, the commendations that come with books sometimes, you know, there's a who's who of the Australian arts community, I guess. And there's also a quote from Andrew Johns, who you mentioned helped you out on some of the, the topics in the book. And I, I want to read out a snippet, if I may. It reads, I see traits in Plum that remind me of myself and the blokes I've played with, good and bad. The characters are so real. An insight into being admired the hero worship, and then the struggles when that all finishes. The way Brennan has presented the brain issues is spot on too. The episodes, aura, the seizures are painfully familiar. This novel is as real and raw as it gets. Brennan, I guess it's always nice to get a rap for your work, but knowing you've nailed this story from a former football player's perspective must be extra heartening and I guess a, a bit of a relief. Well, I'd say that quote was definitely ghost-written because uh, I can't see Joey writing that, so I don't know who wrote that for him. No, I um, <laughs> they, Andrew Johns reads every book I give him. Yeah, right. He's written The Promise Now, the South African book. I just gave him Bluebird, the Malcolm Knox. Yeah, whatever book I read him, he'll devour in a week. He's a, he's really? a little reader. So yeah. is Maddie. Maddie reads more non-fiction than anyone I know. Maddie knows... Matty Johns will turn around and give you the history of bloody pirates and start talking about different blood, you know, lines in the Balkans and and Andrew reads fiction. Yeah, there you go. Calms him down. So I give Andrew all the books I read. Fabulous. Yeah, and not many people know that, you know. He's a little bookworm and and he was just, I I told him about it and now I didn't know if he'd want to get involved and then I think it was quite cathartic for him because... You know, we had a few phone calls that went for a couple of hours, you know, and he um, really opened up about it. And and possibly, I'd like to think that it was maybe cathartic for him as well to Mm. get it out and talk about how he was scared and what it means and the beautiful side of it. And, you know, I mean, Andrew Johns, I was explaining this to uh, his partner, Kate, the other day, who's not the biggest rugby league fan. Mm about how tough he was, I said, you know, we hadn't really seen a halfback tackle like that. Mm. It was like having another front rower, but he had the most beautiful hands of probably any football player that's ever lived, like what he could do with the ball in his hand. But then he tackled as, as hard and as tough 
as any of the big guys. I said, he changed everything, Kate. And she was just looking at me going, I don't care. I, you know, like, she was like, what are you going on about? But he was, you know. That's true, and, yeah. Um, yeah, and I often forget because we're such good mates now. And then I turn around and go, fuck, it's Andrew Johns. <laughs> you know, so it was, um, yeah, it's pretty meaningful. Just the fact that he said it's real mm. because I don't want to do him a disservice and I don't want to do any ex-players a disservice. And, you know, Ian Roberts read it twice and yeah, right. was incredibly, you know, he made a playlist about it and gave me a call. And, you know, so it's it's all been pretty lovely. Spud Carroll gave me a call and he said it kind of helped him with some family stuff he had going on. And, you wow. know, it, people worry about how people are going to get affected when you write about stuff that involves them, but it can also be a really good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to chat to Ian Roberts on this show earlier this year and obviously uh, concussion's been a, a big part of his post-footy life and, and his footy life in general as well. So, yeah, it's interesting that he found it um, so real and more as well. Uh, Brendan, what insights did you get about post-footy life and or concussion from the process of writing the book that you didn't have before you started the project? Is there anything you can isolate as a couple of lessons that you learned? Oh, I'd say like all good things in Australian masculinity, it's very much buried hmm. and not talked about. And I think it's really hard for footy players to talk about it. You know, and I'm the upstart writer, poet guy who goes out there writing poems and books about it. But I think it's really, really, really hard for footy players to talk about the damage or the potential brain damage hmm. that may have been done to them from playing footy because, well, let's face it, there's no way around it mm. with rugby league. It's it's not a contact sport, as Gordon Tallis said. It's a collision sport. Yeah, You run into each other. A hit between 230 kilo forwards is the equivalent of two trucks travelling at 45 kilometres an hour into each other, you know. it's mm. And it doesn't have to be those big elbows to the head or those, like the Latrell Joey Manu hit. It doesn't yeah. have to be the shoulder to the the face it's the thousand little jolts you know that happens on the footy field it's just those little ones that rocks the little plum in a jar that is the brain and yeah there's there's just a silent kind of disregard for it and you know like plum that they kind of go out into pasture and are forgotten and drink their beers and get on with their life and don't really mention it and Mm. i guess plum if any of those guys read it or whatever or if it does circulate to that degree is there to say you know reach out or else it's it's you can get help you can save yourself yeah people do love you and there's nothing embarrassing about it but yeah i think sadly i don't think it's discussed enough not just as an issue but interpersonally in the culture mm-hmm. and what about from the you know separating the concussion from like the post footy vacuum that lots of players step into after a couple of decades in the, through their formative years and young adulthood in a professional sporting environment where kind of everything is done for them and then stepping into what the rest of us see as normal, but it could be quite daunting. So is there anything from that perspective that you either learn from this project or from you know the players you kind of know throughout your work and things that you've noticed and thought, okay, that's, that's kind of a, a tough gig, you know, the, that transition, that full transition from full-time pro sports person to, you know, what next? Well, what I thought, 
you know, what I loved in that, like talking about the juxtaposition was that I could see so many crossovers between, you know, the gods of acting and poetry and literary gods and award-winning actors and ex-footy players and mm. what happens when it stops. And that's what Joey and I talked about a fair bit. It's like, you know, you imagine what it was like for him when at the height of Newcastle, trying to walk through mm. Newcastle at the height of his fame. And I felt a bit of it through what I've done, you know what I mean? And it's so weird and it's so dangerous that if you believe it and these days you'd have to have a mental illness to want to be famous. Mm. It's just such an unpleasant experience that I've seen it through being involved with Avatar and Game of Thrones and mm. people that I've dated and stuff. I, I've seen the height of fame and it is unpleasant. But what happens when it's there and what happens when it stops, you know? Because mm. we are gods. We're built up to be gods. Yeah. And for carrying a football around and for Plum, he he doesn't want to be that guy. Like, he kind of wants to be anonymous and live a normal life, but it's too late. You know, he's a hero. And so I, I, I saw the similarities in kind of the poet king and the footy kings. And because there's violence, you know, there's, there's a brutal sacrifice that goes with being an actor. You know, you never know when you get to work. You've got to turn up and get naked and cry and give everything you've got. And then... You know, you might win an award and then you might not work for two years. Yeah. Um, and, and and that's just a reality for us. And with football, you know, you can win a grand final, you might not get a, a, another team. And, you know, so all that kind of stuff I thought really kind of worked in terms of what these two crafts mm. in a lot of ways had in common. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's fascinating stuff. Now, let's talk about that main character, Peter Lum Plum. Uh, it's a gem of a character. In many ways, a you know, typical knockabout footy bloke, loves a punt, some blokey banter. He's a generous guy, well and truly flawed, has a weird relationship with his celebrity. In his playing days, I guess a, a skillful and courageous type forward, a, a Sharks and Origin legend, a kangaroo. I had in my mind a mix between Gavin Miller and Paul Gallen for his playing style and Andrew Johns for his kind of notoriety in his local community. Did you have a specific player set in mind when crafting this character? Was there a rugby league Frankenstein you were creating there? (laughs) A rugby league Frankenstein. I guess that's probably what a lot of people spend their time doing. (laughs) I thought, yeah, definitely about Gavin Miller because when I was coming through as a young footy player, when I was six or seven, he was like the best player. Yeah. And we all kind of revered him. And, you know, he was the kind of the first ball playing forward, the hit and spin. He had, you know, the hands yeah. of a halfback, and, but he was tougher than anybody. And so I guess I used Gavin's model there and probably a bit of Paul Gallen's tenacity. Absolutely. And, and probably a bit of like Cliff Lyons, like right. just that elusiveness of anything could happen you know what i mean and greg bird like those kind of players yeah, yeah. Okay. that's uh rich terrain there that's a that's a good rugby league frankenstein now brendan plum is set in southern sydney cronulla and surrounds you grew up in the shire you're a, a sharks fan through and through can you tell us about the cronulla you grew up in and how it compares to the cronulla in plum the the modern cronulla well i guess i, I don't know too much about it anymore but 
I grew up in Cronulla. It was a pretty innocent kind of wonderland when I was growing up and golden retrievers and salad sandwiches and long, sunny afternoons. And like I grew up on a cul-de-sac. So if listeners don't know, that's kind of a street that curves around with houses all the way around the curves and it's enclosed so you can't drive through it. Yeah. And so between 3.30 and 6.30, we were all out climbing trees in the sprinklers, playing cricket and, and it was really safe. And then, you know, someone might go, let's go fishing and you'd just quickly grab your rod and run down and fish and you'd catch something, come out, climb a tree, play some footy and uncles would play footy with you and it, it was amazing, you know, and swimming on the weekends and at the beach and, and if Dad had a win on the punt, you'd go to um, King Wan's Chinese restaurant that overlooked Shark Park, you know, on the Lazy Susan and you have a pink lemonade and sweet and sour pork looking over Shark Park because Dad had a win on the races and it was that, you know, and it was all pretty innocent until you kind of turned 12 or 13. And then it was a pretty tough place, you know. Right. They had a bit of a, a darker underbelly than is presented on the manicured lawns and beachfront houses. You know, there's a kind of disturbed masculinity there and not a lot of communication and there's a lot of a lot of suicide, not a lot of divorce. People just kind of stay in their relationships. And, you know, if you had a mullet in those days, mm. that meant you were fucking terrifying right you know these days any dickhead in his 20s has a mullet or even any dickhead who's 15 has a mullet because they think it's funny (laughs) but if you had a mullet in Cronulla in the 80s and 90s that means you had a black panel van with the windows blacked out and allegedly you rooted chicks in the back of your panel van and if if a guy with a mullet wound out his window and looked at you at the lights, you would just put your head down and hope to hell he doesn't get out of the car. Like, yeah. guys with mullets were to be feared. And if, like, if you went to the barber in the 90s and said, I want a mullet, the barber would look at you and go, are you sure? <laughs> you know, like, are you, do, you, do you deserve this haircut? And if so, I'm getting out of here, you know. And I just wish I could communicate that to all the youth who are owning a haircut without really backing it up. <laughs> You know, but I've got off the topic here. But yeah, I think now it's cosmopolitan. You know, now it's all kind of rammed with sexy people. Everyone's trying to live there. Half the NRL live there. Yeah. And it's just this kind of ramped up city, you know, this kind of suburban Sydney mm. that's pretty fired up. There's a lot of money down there. Right. A lot of development, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, while we're on Cronulla and the way it's kind of changed and. You know, it, it, no, there's no place that's perfect. Uh, we all know about the uh, Cronulla rights of December 2005. I'm a lifelong Sydney cider, Brendan, and that was a, a sad. It was a sad day to be a Sydney cider. What was it like for someone who grew up in the area? Because I guess you would have been familiar with all the streets and the apartment blocks and the the train station and all those spots that were featured on the news. Do you remember how all that felt? Yeah, I mean, I remember getting the text message, and, and I got the text message passed on to me, not so much from cousins and friends going, let's get down there, but, like, are you, have you seen this message that's going around? Right. And there was this text message that just got sent to everyone in Cronulla, which was, you know, we're going to go down and beat up these guys, uh, and basically Lebanese people, hmm. and, you know, come down this time out the front of Northeast and bash them. And it just 
like wildfire. And I remember talking to a few mates and my cousins, and they were like, well, we're not going to go, but we might go and watch. But if we go and watch, is that worse? And I was in London, mm. you know, or New York. I think I was living in New York at the time. But I found it so sickening because at that time, like, Cronulla had, it was probably over 90% white, Caucasian, Christian. And it was a sad indictment on a Cronulla that I knew was there, but it definitely wasn't Cronulla. Yeah. It was a minority, and a lot of people came into Cronulla to do that. It definitely doesn't reflect what I know. I mean, I'm just sitting here looking at a photo from my year 10 formal, and there's, you know, Vietnamese, Italian blokes, Fijian blokes, all my arms around them. Mm. Because that's what happened in Cronulla was different cultures came in almost like at once, you know, a Greek culture would come in, Vietnamese, Fijian, and there'd be a little bit of trouble where the Italians would pop our footies and the white guys would pop their soccers and, and then there'd be a bit of rubble and then they'd be in your swimming pool in two weeks dating your sister and you'd be playing on the same team. And, you know, there, yeah. it, there wasn't racism at all in the 18 years that I was there. But I think there was something about that cultural clash that seemed very, very hard to kind of solve. But it was, yeah, fucking horrible and a terrible indictment. But it's definitely not the Sutherland Shire I knew. Yeah. Yeah. I've always wondered when that sort of thing happens, you know, I guess we're lucky we live in a society where that kind of thing, if it does happen, it doesn't last too long at that scale. But I often wonder what happens to all those people involved that day you know what what proportion took stock and said geez what did i get involved in there and how many you know continues to justify their actions in one way or another and would act in a the same way if similar conditions arose uh, yeah i don't know tough question yeah well, it's probably like you know internet trolls yeah like the research i did on internet trolls was a lot of the guys who did it and not on the internet all the time on twitter they just go on there one day and then just smash some guy and write some horrible things and then they go back to their life and they've got two kids and a job and, yeah. you know, a lot of guys, that just hit, it, it just it, it just kind of connected with a few people that went, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on board this. Mm. And they were regular people who now have families and stuff and I'm sure they're incredibly ashamed mm. of what they did that day on both sides. Mm incredibly ashamed and and so they should be you know i'm not angry at the people that bullied me at school because bullying came out of fear and racism comes out of fear Mm. you know it's all fear and hopefully they've come to terms with their idiotic fear of the other their xenophobia because any judgment that we have as human beings if you judge the you're revealing your own character Mm. You're not revealing anybody else's. You're just revealing your character, judging another, be they sexuality, weight, gender, race, religion. All you're doing is revealing the emptiness of your own character in judging people. And hopefully people can come to terms with that stuff as they grow up. Yeah, judging. It's the easiest thing to do. And uh, yeah, we all fall into that trap, you know, at least every now and then. Brendan... Let's finish on a, a more positive note. As a, a huge yeah. Sharks fan from the get-go, do you have an era that you hold particularly close to your heart? Would it be from your, your formative years? You mentioned Gavin Miller. Or are we talking 
2016 cut and dried. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm going to answer that ultimatum with with a yes. Um, I, you know, I was watching. I think it was 98. Oh, you know, and Fox Sports they've got those yeah. classic games that they play, and for lonely single men, you find yourself watching a whole game of rugby league at two o'clock on a Tuesday. Going to shit, man. Guilty. What's going on here? But you know there's hundreds of Aussies across Australia doing the same thing after Boxing Day, just going, I might watch Newcastle versus George. <laughs> <laughs> round 11, um, Cogra, yeah, exactly. Round 11, <laughs> here we go. I'm going to get some corn chips and a Diet Coke and sit here in my undies and devour an 80-minute game from 23 years ago. You know, why not? And, uh, you know, I think Joey went off and Maddie took over and they beat the Saints on the bell and I was watching it and I thought this is modern rugby league is only about three rule changes away from being back to that holy grail where rugby league was tough fast and exciting if we can just clear out the ruck and and not have all that wrestle that Cameron Smith invented the greatest player ever to ruin the game there's um, a Cronulla supporter you know, talking, that's for sure. The goat of manipulation. <laughs> and if we can clear up the ruck and get people playing the ball a little faster, we're not far away because we've got the players. And that six again is fantastic when it's used well. We've got the players. We could be back to that late 90s. Laurie Daly, kind of sure. Andrew Johns, Gary Belcher, Bradley Clyde, that era where Rugby League was at its best, we could get back to that pretty soon Yeah, if we clear up that ruck and all that bullshit that happens in the tackle. <laughs> um, but, yeah, 2016, you know, it was pretty moneyball. If you look at what Shane Flanagan and, and I think Michael Ennis had a lot to do with it too of, you know, kind of honing a lot of those big personalities in. But we managed to get Luke Lewis and Ben Barber and, Jack Bird and just to, to do their best in, in a year where we had an oppressive forward pack and yeah, I'd go as far to say it was the greatest day of my life. Yeah, really? Were you there? I was in London. I had 20 people in my living room at seven o'clock in the morning and we had the coronas out and every <laughs> nice. Australian in England was over and my mum was there and the ex-chairman, Damien Irvine and we went absolutely mental all around Notting Hill that day. It was just so fucking joyous. <laughs> all of London were like, what is up, up, Cronulla, and why do these men keep singing it? You know? <laughs> well, interesting. It's interesting to note that uh, there's no love lost between Sharks and Storm fans there. I don't think there was ever any love. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, one, I guess, point I wouldn't mind raising is just talking about the golden era. You mentioned the, the late 90s. Is that a, more a nostalgia thing, or are you looking at those games objectively, do you think, and going, yep, this was the game? Yeah, no, just the, just the footy. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not ironic nostalgia of, like, how good were the socks. It's yeah. like, it was the running game and the exhaustion and the footy that was played and the triple cutout passes and, you know, the quick rucks and, oh, you go in there, I'll go there, I'll back you up. And yep. every play was kind of happening and... And you just got, you know, forwards were tough and backs were exciting. And, you know, it wasn't these really boring block plays. But half the teams, I think, are moving away from that now. And 
there's teams that are trying to copy Melbourne Storm from five years ago that really need to switch up and start playing the eyes up style. Yeah. But we that's what I'm saying. We could return to good old-fashioned rugby league if we just sort out that ruck. It could be that good again. Yeah, well, I totally agree. The um, the peak block play is a few years in the in the past, which is definitely a good thing. So, And, yeah, look, I'm the same as you. Like, I look back on the 90s as, as sort of a, a golden era, but I, I'm never 100% sure if, if that's just my memory playing tricks. But it's good to know that um, you've looked at it, you've been watching the, the games on Fox, and you can confirm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've spoken to Andrew a bit about like Everett and Maddie Johns as well, and they're like, I know, we're nearly there because after the whole um, Super League, like it, it got distorted and then they brought in the wrestle and now it's getting back to being a popular sport again. It's like we could nearly fix it, you know, and, and Valandis has been fantastic with keeping it afloat. Like, you know, if it was with any... Anyway, this is a conversation sure. for another tab. Yeah, yeah. Thank <laughs> you for having me on your podcast Johnny Dunk Dunk, um, I've loved it, um, and I hope yeah. If everybody yeah. gets out there and buys a cup of your plum, or if you are you're not a reader, jump on the Audible because I read the book out and I do all the characters, and a lot of non-reader guys are really enjoying the audio book. Beautiful. Well, you've done my outro for me. I think fans will love it. Give it a whirl in 2022. Brendan Cow, go well, and thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Mate, keep rugby league progressive, that's what I say. (laughs) Progressive Rugby League. Brilliant stuff. Thank you, Brendan. So that's the second fiction book we've featured on PRL Book Club, the first being Max Eason's The Magpie Wing from August or September last year, I think. And interestingly, both feature different parts of Sydney quite prominently. Plum is set in and around the Sutherland Shire, while the Magpie Wing traverses southwestern and innerwestern Sydney. And as I kind of alluded to in my chat with Brendan, if you're not from those parts and want an insight into what makes Cronulla or Liverpool or Newtown tick, these two books can do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Sure, histories and biographies can take you there, but fiction gives you a little something extra, you know, the the perfect complement, really. Anyway, enough out of me. Let's call it. Thanks, as always, for joining us, peeps. Until we next meet somewhere at the intersection between the great game of rugby league and the wild world of the arts. Rugby league, homie, and see ya.